Blog Talk Radio. Driving all night, my hands wet on the wheel. It's talking in circles. That's the voice in my head that drives my heel. With your hosts, Clayton Caldwell. My baby calling till I need you here. And John Harlow. And that's the half past four and I'm shifting gear. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Talking in Circles. I am Clayton Caldwell with John Harlow here as we bring you another great episode. Tonight, we're going to dive into a lot of NASCAR news. Robert Yates, car owner, crew chief, engine builder, uh, 2018 NASCAR Hall of Fame inductee, passed away on Monday night at the age of 74. That was tough news to hear. We'll talk about Robert Yates' legacy and uh, his life in NASCAR+. Plus. We'll discuss the 2018 NASCAR Cup Series rule package. What do we like about it? What do we like? What don't we like about it? Uh, and also, Denny Hamlin, he gave us some insight on the business of the sport. An article with Bob Pockers today talked about uh, the business side of NASCAR. And then we'll preview the Bank of America 500 from Charlotte Motor Speedway uh, and talk about round two of the NASCAR playoffs. Taking your phone calls, 917-889-8280 here. But, John, first, Robert Yates. Um, one of my personal favorite guys in this sport, a guy who, uh, as a Ford man growing up, I rooted for Fords, was a Ford guy through and through. Uh, just, you know, won a championship with Dale Jarrett in 1999, a couple days, three days on the 500, one with Davey Allison, two with Dale Jarrett. Um, did a lot of good for this sport. His knowledge and tutelage and engine building still win races on the NASCAR circuit. Uh, he passed away Wednesday night at the age of 74, a very sad day after a battle with cancer, John. Yeah, it was. Um, and I really, it, whenever we lost Robert Yates on Monday, the first thing I thought of was how pissed off I was at the Hall of Fame voters for not putting him in last year, knowing that he had liver cancer, knowing he was going to be going to the Hall of Fame, giving him the chance to go in while he's alive. That's the first thing that went through my mind. Second thing that went through my mind was, good God, could that man make some horsepower? He won with Bobby Allison. He won with... Um, Davey Allison. I mean, he, his engines were, they just sang. He won with Holman Moody. He actually built IndyCar engines a couple times. I mean, that guy could do anything and find more horsepower than anybody could ever figure out. And the one thing that uh, really impressed me most about it, and you talk to Dale Jarrett, and you listen to Dale Jarrett talk about him um, Tuesday night on um, the NASCAR America show, and Dale Jarrett said Robert Yates knew everything from where the brew handles were to every minute. I mean, every finite part on that car, there was nothing Robert Yates did not know about that total organization. And he just was a winner. My favorite driver growing up was Davey Allison. I loved Davey Allison until we lost him in the helicopter crash. What Robert Yates, Larry McReynolds and Davey Allison could have done together would have been phenomenal because there was more horsepower in that 28 card you could ever imagine. And I think one of the things where Robert Yates um, excelled at was he could take a group of people, build a great crew, build a great car and go out and win. The thing that Robert Yates probably didn't like most about the sport was as it grew, how money oriented it was. And it wasn't about the people and the team that you built, it was about how much you could put into it and how much money it costs to do things. 
and you're out spending time trying to woo sponsors and trying to do appearances and trying to do all that stuff instead of focusing on building a great race car. Yeah, that I think was the most disappointing part about it was, you know, with all the success he had, I was watching his team fall the way it did. But, you know, to me, when I think of Robert Yates, you brought it up perfectly, is the horsepower. I remember growing up as a kid, Dale Jarrett, and I tell people this, you know, because I grew up, the era I remember the best was probably 96 to about 2002. That was the era I really grew up with. Um, and from that period, there was Jeff Gordon and then there was Dale Jarrett. I mean, that's how good Dale Jarrett was during that time period. Him, Todd Parrott, and Robert Yates, I mean, unbelievable. And every race, Dale Jarrett won. And every time he ran well, you know, they'd ask him, what's the difference today? And he'd say, Robert Yates horsepower every single time. And he wasn't the only one. I mean, everybody talked about Robert Yates horsepower. I mean, Jack Roush, his team didn't take a step to, to really become a powerhouse in the mid to mid to the end of the two thousands until he merged his engine department with Robert Yates. So I think when you look at that, it's a, uh, it's a really, it just shows you the power he's had in this sport building his engines, doing a lot of great stuff. Uh, it really is an ama- amazing accomplishment what he accomplished in this sport. And he built engines back in the 70s for Hama Moody, uh, you know, in the 80s for Robbie Allison, like he said, you know, then Harry Rainier. He bought Harry Rainier's team. And him and Davey and, and Larry, like you said, they were going to be, I mean, an, the all-time best. I mean, they had everything in place to win a lot of races, to win a lot of championships in the 90s. And unfortunately, that was cut short. But, you know, even Ernie Irvin, when they got Ernie Irvin in that 28 car, John, they won a lot of races and they were great. Uh, And then tragedy struck again when Ernie got hurt. Yeah, it just seemed like um, once things were really clicking for Robert Yates Racing, some sort of tragedy took place. I mean, they lost Ernie. Um, I mean, they lost Davey. Ernie was basically uh, taken out of the commission for almost a full year and a half. after he hit the wall at Michigan, I mean, they had the fill in drivers for the year. Then they had Dale Jarrett finish out the year in the 28 and Davey. I mean, Ernie Irvin was on with Dave Moody uh, on Tuesday and Ernie said the only reason, and he, he said, there's no way in hell NASCAR would let him do it now. But the only reason Ernie Irvin was able to drive those last couple races with an eye patch on, was because Robert Yates said he turned laps just as fast with an eye patch on as he did without an eye patch. And NASCAR took his word for it. That would never happen now. I mean, you look at the days when Ricky Rudd would tape his eyes open. I mean, when Ricky Rudd closed his team and drove the 28 car for Robert Yates, that car was still in contention all the time. That 28 car, and I, I'm, it's one of those things, there's car numbers you want to see. I mean, you always associate 43 with Richard Petty. You always associate the three now with Dale Earnhardt Sr., even though it was Richard Childress's and other people drove it. I always associated that 28 with Robert Yates. The 88, yeah, Dale Jarrett won a championship in the 88, won a lot of races. The 28 was Robert Yates. And I'm after uh, Haviland went away and it became the M&M's car and uh, Elliot Sadler drove it, Robert Yates made it the 38 because it was the Haviland number 28. And that's all I remember. And thankfully, that 28 has not run since. Yeah, I mean, they had Travis Quapel in it. 
uh, in 2008-ish or 9-ish. I can't remember off the top of my head what year it was now, but that was when Doug owned the team. You know, and like I said, the, the fall of Robert Yates Racing really hurt. I mean, that was, to me, one of the best teams in NASCAR. I loved them. And that was hard to see. I think part of it was the fact that they gave their engines their strongest asset to Jack Roush, and then Jack started to beat beat them in the Ford camp, and uh, they started losing sponsorship and stuff. But listen, uh, I loved that team. I, I loved – I thought Robert Yates, to me, like you said earlier, uh, he should have been a Hall of Fame years ago, I thought, because of just the amount of things he did in the sport. He was a team manager. He was a crew chief. He was a, uh, an engine builder. Uh, he was a car owner, and he did everything he needed to do. And uh, he really – he did it with just – you know, he was graceful. I mean, he was such a nice guy. I don't really remember him going after anybody, or being nasty to anybody. Uh, just an unbelievable talent, and he's surely going to be missed, John. Um, and uh, I'm glad he's, he knew he was going to Hall of Fame. Uh, he deserved that that knowledge to know that he was going to Hall of Fame. But, you know, we think of Davey. I think of Davey, too. You know, I, I grew up, and I, I was four years old when Davey passed. And I remember I have very, very, very limited memories of Davey in that 28 car. But when you go back and look at that 28 car with Davey in it, I mean, it it would have been, you know, I always said this, and this is, I hope, no knock to Dale Jarrett, but if Davey Allison stayed alive in that 28 car, it wouldn't have been Roush Fenway Racing. It probably would have been Yates Fenway Racing because that's how powerful Davey Allison would have been in that 28 car. It would have made all the difference in the world. And Ernie Irvin did a great job in that car too. I don't think Ernie was the same driver after he got hurt. Uh, who could blame him? But uh, they were still very good. You know, and Kenny Irwin struggled in that car for a little while. Ricky Rudd, I thought, did very well in that car as well. Um, and then, you know, they had the Elliott Sadler and, and Dale Jarrett. And they, you know, once engineering came into the sport, I think Robert didn't like that as much. He was more of a hands-on guy and couldn't accept the engineering part of the sport. Uh, and it really kind of, I think, changed the whole complexion of that race team. And that was unfortunate. But, listen, he, he still, uh, his impact is still felt, like I said, with Doug his son, who he basically taught every single uh, thing he knew to Doug Yates. And Doug Yates is still, you know, building new concepts of engines and all that kind of stuff today. Um, so to build, to, to have his knowledge and tutelage still in this sport and still winning races, it's pretty incredible, John. I think um, Doug Yates, I mean, it was, I was listening to Ray Everham with Moody on Tuesday too. And Ray Everham said, whenever we were racing against each other, he says, Robert and I weren't close. We really didn't like each other, but it wasn't because they didn't respect each other. It was because Ray said, I got tired of Robert kicking my butt every week because the horsepower coming out of that 28 and 88 were always something you had to fight to keep up with. And even though Ray won a bunch of championships with the 24 car, he always was competing against Robert Yates. And then he said, after we both got out of the sport, we became really good friends. We really liked each other. He was a good guy. And if you look at, if you want to parallel a career, look at Ray Evernham and look at Robert Yates. And it's kind of fitting that they're both going in the Hall of Fame at the same time. Again, unfortunately, Robert won't be there to see it and won't be there to yeah. be part of it. And again, I blame the damn Hall of Fame voters for that. Um, Robert Yates should have been in last year especially knowing the situation. You know he's going to go in the Hall of Fame sooner or later. Do it while he's here. And that's one of the things with the NASCAR Hall of Fame that, I mean, you have 70 years of the sport you're trying to put all together. You've only got 25 people in the hall right now. If you know somebody's going in, 
put him in. And that's what they yeah. should have done. I mean, I, I think Dale Jarrett was a great driver. I mean, I don't think Dale Jarrett was a Hall of Famer before Robert Yates. Robert Yates, yeah. well, without Robert Yates, there is no Dale Jarrett because Dale Jarrett was a mid-pack guy. He wasn't anything special whenever he ran for the – I mean, he got a, won, a, won a race for uh, the Wood Brothers, went to Joe Gibbs and helped them get the team started. He won a few races for Joe Gibbs, but wasn't anything special there. And he went to Robert Yates and filled in for Ernie when he was hurt. Didn't really do anything special, but when they paired him with Todd Parrott, with Robert Yates guiding the force, they were phenomenal. And without Robert Yates, Dale Jarrett is not a Hall of Famer. I agree, and I think Dale would admit that. You know, and like I said, every single time I heard him talk in Victory Lane, and Dale won a lot back then. I mean, it's interesting you brought up Ray Abraham because, um, you know, like I said, and people. It's hard. It was hard to understand, like when you explain to people just how good that 88 car was from 96 to 2002. Like I, I did the math one day and I think Jeff Gordon won like 25 percent of the races in that era. And then it was Dale Jarrett won 15 percent, everybody else. Uh, and then it was everybody else. It was just it was incredible to watch that 88 car. You know, they won one championship. And I'm glad they got that because that was the only one Robert Yates was able to get. Um, and it's unfortunate that. Uh, that was the only one he was he was going to get because I felt like 92, they probably had a chance. 94, they definitely had a chance. 92, they were right there, and they had the accident at uh, Atlanta. 94, they were right there when Ernie got hurt. And then who knows what would happen in 93, um, and who knows what would happen if Davey stayed alive. But they had a lot of uh, great, great memories in this sport. Robert Yates Racing is one of the teams that will never be forgotten. And I'll end with this. There's not too many people on this earth, and I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it's probably 10 who said they've won 50 more or more races in NASCAR as a team owner. And Robert Yates did that. And who knows how many races he won with an engine and stuff like that. So uh, he surely will be missed and uh, left a lasting legacy on this sport. No doubt about it. And he's going to the hall of fame and rightfully so. 917-889-8280 here. Clayton Caldwell, John Harlow talking in circles tonight. Uh, we have to move on here as great as Robert Yates was. Uh, and we'll miss him. No doubt about it. Uh, interesting little news. This week about the 2018 rule package. They're not, you know, the last couple of years, John, we've seen them take a lot of downforce away from these race cars. Not going to take as much downforce away. The spillator size will stay the same. Uh, they're going to take a little bit of uh, um, the spoiler size will stay the same. Excuse me. They're going to take a little bit off the spoiler, a little bit off the radiator pan. It will decrease downforce by a little bit, uh, but not a, a drastic change to the downforce. Uh, something that we were accustomed to seeing here the last couple of years, uh, but no ride height rule at the plate tracks. We're also going to eliminate the spring and shock rule at the plate tracks. Hopefully that'll help spice up the plates a little bit more. Um, what are your thoughts on it, on the 2018 rule pack? It's not that big of a difference. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? What are your thoughts? Well, let's put it this way. You and I have complained throughout most of the season that the racing is sucked because once you get to the leader, you can't pass them. Um, if there's not that much of a change in the rules package, we're going to see the same pretty much thing we saw this year. And one of the things that you're looking at, attendance is down. TV ratings are down. The racing hasn't been that great. I mean, you look, it's been Toyota, 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 and that's about it. Every now and then you'll have a Jimmy Johnson show up at a track that Jimmy Johnson usually wins at, or Harvick will, somebody will steal a race on a, short track or a road course where the uh, aerodynamics really don't mean as much. So pretty much it's 
going to be the same thing unless something drastically happens. I mean, Chevy's coming out with a new car. Hendricks going to unveil their four tomorrow at the Hall of Fame. But until they get the aerodynamics either to where it doesn't play as big a role or it's even for everybody, you're not going to, it's going to, you're going to see the same thing over and over. Everybody can pass throughout the field, but nobody's going to get past the leader. Yeah. I mean, I think the drastic rule change for 2018 is the engine package that we're, we're going to see as far as, you know, there's a lot of different ways, uh, NASCAR is only going to allow teams to use certain engines for certain races. There's going to be a limit on some engines. Um, I think that's going to be the biggest change, you know. And one change I'd like to see make is a gear rule. I've been saying that for a while. I think that's something that needs to be uh, looked at for sure. But at the end of the day, you know, I don't know if this is necessarily a bad thing to not make drastic changes here because ultimately what it does is cost teams money. And I think that's ultimately where this is coming from, where these team owners in the RTA are going, Hey, listen, we don't know if we want to spend all that money building brand new race cars again, or taking off however, however much we're, we're taking off and these setups being completely useless next year. Um, and maybe if we build on a package for two, three, four years, the racing will get a little bit better. No doubt clean air is still an issue on a mile and a half tracks. Um, I think it needs to be looked at even more. Uh, how do we prevent that? I think maybe there's some ways we need to look at where uh, maybe aerodynamic, past aerodynamics, where we, maybe we've done all we could aerodynamics and look at some other stuff in the race car uh, to help keep the air out, of, keep the leader from punching a big hole in the air. I think that would be a huge thing. So um, to me, this isn't as big as announcement as we saw earlier in the year when they announced the engine deal. But still, John, it's going to be interesting to see what goes on. And if if the racing gets a little bit better, you think there it's possible we could build on this package? I mean, you know, there was a time in this sport, and I think we're long gone from this, and I'm trying to compare 2018 to 1995, but there was a time in this sport where, you know, you could run very competitively in a car that was two, three years old and, uh, and, and keep it, and that would help, you know, the, the race teams. You know, that would help them keep a good race car, and uh, what they put into a race car was, was huge. Now it's it's – you know, you're running a car that's eight weeks old. You might as well be running a 1991 uh, Harry Kent car out there. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing not to change the rules. Do you think that might help smaller teams put a little bit of an edge, gain a little bit of an advantage on these teams because they don't have to put a lot of money into the R&D of this sport for next year because the rule package might be similar to what they ran in 2017? Well, I think part of it is the aerodynamics are going to be the same. So you pretty much have that, but you know, they've got engineers in there trying to look at the front end geometry and how to make uh, mechanical grip and all the different things that they go into it. The smaller teams have no chance because they don't have the engineering budget. There's always somebody out there who's trying to find a new way to make the car stick better, turn better, um, get back into the throttle better. I mean, the two things that used to be how NASCAR was really great, if you were going to win a race, you had to manage your engine and you had to manage your tires. And the tires don't fall off like they used to, except at places like Darlington and some of the ones, Atlanta, where the tracks weren't out. But for the repave, they're going to put the hardest tire out there and the tires could probably go all 500 miles. And with the rev limiter in there and the tapered spacer in there, which cuts back on the horsepower, they're not blowing engines. So it doesn't. I mean, you can put a monkey in the car sometimes and let it run. 
because you don't have to worry about managing your engine. Just put the foot to the floor, rev it as fast, go as fast as you can, put it as hard as you can, but you don't have to worry about the engine blowing up because the rev limiter is going to stop it. I mean, you're not going to go any higher. Once it hits the chip, it's going to slow down and keep it at that level. You're not blowing engines that way. And with the tires, now you look, there used to be comers and goers, and it was a matter of how good you could manage your tires. And that doesn't exist anymore. Once you're there, you're there. There's nobody drifting back unless they're totally out of whack. Yeah, I think that's absolutely accurate as far as um, when we get 30, 40 laps into a run, it just seems like uh, that everybody sort of is doing the same thing. They're sort of staying in the same spot. And I think that, that the stages have helped that a little bit, but that sort of puts a Band-Aid on the problem. If they could figure out a way to get these cars, like you said, where handling changes drastically from one way to – from one part of the, of the run to another, I think that would help it. Now, if the stages have – uh, change the game. You know, we don't see 150 lap runs anymore uh, and completely changing a race car where these teams don't get a chance to work on these race cars. Now they get a chance to work on them a lot. I also think the track bar adjusters helped that a lot, helped uh, hurt that problem a little bit where these teams can now, these drivers can now adjust it in their race cars and everybody can do it. It's not like, you know, one car is doing it. And so if your car is not handling so hot, you can just turn a knob and get it to handling a little bit better. And it sort of levels the playing field where everybody runs the same speed. Uh, and I do think that if we could figure out a way, and I thought the first part of Dover, the first part of that race, the first hundred laps were great uh, because the teams haven't had a chance to work on their race cars yet. And once we got the pits in there and, and the adjustments happened, you know, after this, the, the first caution and, once the restart happened, it just seemed like nobody really went anywhere when he got 30 laps into a run. And that continued throughout the day until lap traffic with Chase Elliott at the end. Um, so, you know, I agree with you there. I just think we need to, to focus on that. But um, I'm interested to see if this package in 2018, if NASCAR, could, we can build on this a little bit and say, hey, you know, yeah, we like some of the things we saw. We're going to build on it a little bit and see if these teams, because uh, to me, I don't want to scrap a package completely after one year. I think it's dopey. Uh, you know, maybe we can run a couple of years with this package, and if it doesn't work, you know, uh, work on it again after 2019, 2020. Um, but I'm interested to see how this, if anything, changes. I would like to see him take the splitter off the car completely, um, but I don't know if we're ever going to see that for sure. I think the splitters on there supposedly for safety reasons keep pushing the car toward the ground. So if it does spin backwards, it doesn't uh, fly up in the air. Uh, one of the things that really, if we want to try to look at where the racing was great, the first year they brought out the Gen 6 car with all the horsepower that they had, that was some of the best racing we had that year. And then they started tinkering with it. And then they put the, took that, I mean, they took horsepower away and I'll be honest to God with you. I think that was a downfall of Tony Stewart. Tony Stewart, if you remember when he drove Xfinity coming up, he wasn't great. There was nothing to write home about when it came to Tony Stewart. Why? Because the Xfinity is 100 horsepower lower than the cup cars. Then when he got to the cup level, and nobody was really expecting anything great out of him because he was a 10th, 5th to 10th place car most of the time when he was driving the 44 for Joe Gibbs. Then when he got to the cup level, holy heck, look at this guy go. 
And when they took the horsepower away, that was the beginning of the end, other than the injuries, but the beginning of the end of Tony Stewart because he couldn't wrap his head around the lower horsepowered cars. And you look at what he's driving now. He's driving a World of Outlaws sprint car. Those They have 410 cubic inch engines with 800 horsepower. Driving around a half mile track. So he's back to driving horsepower. He's getting comfortable again. I think taking away the horsepower made it worse. Yeah, and you can't over really overread the engine into a corner anymore because of the tapered spacer. But um, I agree with you. I think the tapered spacer, a lot of people have different opinions about that. I think for us, uh, we're on the same page there. Uh, but I want to talk about this engine rule before we move on here quick. Um, you know, teams will use a short block sealed engine in 13 races, meaning the engine block crankshaft connecting rods, pistons, and oil pan are sealed for use in a second race. Team can choose, a team can choose in which 13 races they will use the sealed engine. Also, for the Clash at Daytona and the All-Star race, teams will use a long block sealed engine that has the same components as the short block sealed engine, along with cylinders and valves, pieces that are highly susceptible to failure. Um, NASCAR will enforce a single engine rule for all events, including the Daytona 500. If a team is forced to replace an engine, no matter who, whether the failure occurs before the first practice or after happy hour, the car will start at the rear of the field for the event. Teams will no longer be able to carry engines into their backup car. NASCAR is attempting to discourage teams from carrying three engines to the track. Um, so what are your thoughts there, John, on that as far as, um, you know, these engines? Do you think it's going to make a big deal with these sealed engines? Uh, do you think it's going to make a big change? Or do you think it's going to be sort of the same? I think uh, the minute we have Kyle Busch, Martin Truex Jr., Kevin Harvick, Brad Keselowski, all blow engines the second time they run the race, that rule will go out the window. If they have like six or seven cars blow the second time they run it, the the rule will go away. I don't see how they can really put on a good show. I mean, let's let's put it this way. You go through, you're supposed to run the sealed package, whatever. Somebody's already got 500 miles on, a, on an engine, and it's sealed up and put it again where they can't retune it, they can't overhaul it or anything. And let's say somebody blows a engine in happy hour and has to go to a backup, I mean, go to the backup engine and start at the rear of the field. You've got a 500-mile fresher engine than everybody else does. Tell me going to the rear of the field is going to be that much of a disadvantage. There may be people trying to blow engines in practice. I'll go to the rear of the field. I got a 500-mile fresher engine. It's like you've seen at times where people do not, I mean, if they finish, um, 13th in um, qualifying, they're not really all that ticked off because that saves three laps on their tires. And three laps at Atlanta, three laps at Darlington, that's a that's like a whole new tire to you compared to what, I mean, you go out and do the pace laps at Darlington, you already want new tires. So, I mean, you go through stuff like that, there's going to be a way that somebody's going to figure out how to beat the system and put this rule into total disarray and we'll be talking about how stupid the engine rule is before we hit Charlotte for the Coke 600. Yeah, it's be interesting. I, I like the fact that it's going to be different because we haven't ever seen anything like this. And I'm curious to see how it works out because we just talked about, you know, you don't really see engine failures anymore. Um, you know, and I think it would be cool to sort of have that back in it. I think this is more to look out for teams 
spending money, trying to spend money. Um, but again, I think the gear rule would, would do better than that. I don't know how much this is going to change competition. You might see teams uh, pack it in earlier in practice, like you said, to save. If the car is pretty close, they're going to say, hey, you know what, we'll get it ready for Sunday where instead of making another run because they can't change the engine. Uh, but they can't change the engine really unless go to the back on a standard weekend anyway. But for the Daytona 500, teams usually change it after the 150-mile the qualifying races on Thursday. I, I think that's pretty much standard as teams that will go, hey, we'll change our engine and put a brand-new one in and, and let it go um, just to try and prevent the, so many miles will be on the engine. So that's going to be interesting because, um, you know, you got to go Saturday practice, Sunday's qualifying, Wednesday's practice, Thursday's 150-mile qualifying, Friday's Saturday practice, and then the 500 all on one engine. Uh, that could be that could get dicey there at the end if a team uh, is trying a new engine package for restricted plate tracks in the new year. And, uh, you know, you get down to the day 500 and all of a sudden an engine starts to blow. So it could be very interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, final thoughts, John, on, on the 2018 rule package before we move on. Right now, I, I mean, looking at it the way they're talking about it, it's minimal changes. It's going to be more of the same. So if people are griping about the way racing's going, they're going to gripe more next year. If they love the ra- way racing's going, they're going to be happy as crap with the package. So, I mean, it's no real change, no real difference. It's going to be more of the same until you either find a way to make the tires where you have to manage them or make the engine where you have to manage it. And I'm telling you, the engine roll is going to turn into a cluster before the Coke 600. You can record this, save the bit, (laughs) and play it back before we go to the Coke 600. And if I'm wrong, I'll say I'm sorry, I was wrong. But I can almost tell you that it's going to be a cluster before we hit the Coke 600. We're going to try that. I'm going to see if we can bring this up here in 20, May 2018 and see how close and how right you were about that. You know, that was funny because I remember a rule they, they changed a couple of years ago when they had that group qualifying deal where if you remember uh, in Daytona, I think it was Bobby Labonte and another team wrecked. And uh, it was just an, it turned in at Daytona, it was an absolute dra- disaster. They had drafting uh, for qualifying and it was just so many cars got torn up. And then we had, it was just, sort of a nutty, nutty deal at Daytona. And I, we, Lee and I, who used to do the show, uh, Brand, my brother and I, we both said, it's fine to do it at the mile and a half, but at the super speedways, this is going to be a disaster. And then we did it for one super speedway weekend before teams and everybody started saying it's a disaster. So it'd be interesting to see if you're accurate, like we were on that, on that drafting deal a bunch of years ago. Um, some interesting comments today, John, from Denny Hamlin. Uh, Bob Pockers from ESPN wrote an article, and Denny Hamlin said that race car drivers are underpaid. And I'll just take a couple excerpts from this article. He said, quote, we're way underpaid as race car drivers. There's no doubt doing what we do, the schedule that we have, and the danger that we incur every single week. NASCAR drivers should be making NBA, NFL money. Uh it goes, he goes on to say, I'm sure this will be in some headline somewhere where Denny says drivers aren't paid enough, but I'm basing it off of other sports. Uh, I'm not including myself. I'm including the back half of the field. Those drivers are risking the same amount I am, and they should be paid a hell of a lot more, end quote. He also said there's got to be a reset. It doesn't come from the drivers. It comes from NASCAR helping the teams to survive on a better basis. There just has to be some different revenue sharing. 
end quote. So to me, there's two parts to this, John. There's the revenue sharing that he touched on, and there's the drivers making money aspect. First of all, drivers making money. I want to get your opinion before we dive into the revenue, because I think that's going to be a very interesting topic. Um, NASCAR drivers are making more money than they ever have before. If you go back to you know, the 80s, uh, where we didn't have restrictive plates in these race cars, and they were doing 212 miles an hour at Talladega with no heads, basically no headrest, an open face helmet, and a lap buckle over their their waists, and they were making not you know probably one sixteenth of what these drivers are making today. NASCAR's come a long way. Uh, I understand what Hamlin's saying when they say they put their lives on the line, uh, but it's a different sport than the NBA and the NFL where you don't have a union. And I think that's something that we're going to see in the next five years with these NASCAR drivers. I think they're leaning towards that. Uh, but also an interesting thing I heard this week was Matt Kenseth. Um, we're talking about him a lot, not getting a ride. And, and I heard a rumor, I think it was Pacris this week, tweeted it or, or said something about it in an article where Kenseth is asking for a lot of money and he's not budging on it. And I think it's these veteran race car drivers like Denny Hamlin who have, are used to making pretty good change and they want to make more change. And they said, if we lower our standings, we're never going to see that money. So um, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think NASCAR drivers are underpaid compared to other sports? Uh, what are your thoughts on this, John? I think the big picture of it is more than they're underpaid. I can't imagine putting my life on the line every time I go to do my job. I did for a while, but I mean, again, I was, whenever I was in the military, I wasn't an uh, infantry guy. I was doing radio and television. So I mean, I, it wasn't like I was putting my life on the line like they were, but I was still getting paid the same amount that a soldier of the same rank who was a trigger puller as they were. I think that in the grand scheme of things, NASCAR drivers are underpaid compared to other sports, uh, what they're doing, what it takes to do it. When you go and you're shooting three-pointers all day for the NBA, or if you're like the eighth guy on the bench and you're making $11 million a year, compared to the guys in NASCAR, and if you look, they're probably juniors, probably more than anybody, but I mean, your average driver probably makes about 2 to $3 million a year. To put your life on the line like that, especially when there's a $820 million a year coming in from television, there's an average of 65 to 75,000 people putting in a minimum of 50 bucks down for a ticket. There's t-shirt sales, there's hot dogs, there's all the stuff that goes on. NASCAR is a billion dollar plus a year sport. And there's 40 guys. Well, and Danica who are out there risking their lives for our entertainment. I have no bones about them wanting as much as they can get without those people driving as competitive as they are. I mean, let's say if these drivers say, okay, we're not going to drive anymore. What are they going to do? Bring the Xfinity series up. And all we do is bitch about how bad the Xfinity series is. The sport would go to crap. Yeah, and, and that's, a, that's where I'm at ter- with that. That's a terrific point, John, you just brought up, because 
I've said this for a year, for a couple of years now, with social media and with television as big as it was, you know, there was a time in a sport and people that know the history know this, where they tried to create a driver's union, the uh, Professional Drivers Association, the PDA, um, 1969 Talladega, the tires at Talladega weren't holding up to the high bank, high speed of the cars, and they kept blowing the tires, and these drivers got together and said, we're not going to race, and created a union. Well, they brought up the uh, the lower division drivers at that point and had them run the first race at Talladega Super Speed. Richard Brickhouse uh, was, was the winner, I believe, that night, that day, and they ran the race anyway, and you know, the PDA was destroyed right then and there. Um, but this isn't 1969 anymore, you know, and we see the power Dale Earnhardt Jr. has. You brought him up. He's such an interesting driver because of, A, his popularity, and B, his health situation when compared to this. You know, his popularity, Dale Jr., no doubt, makes more money than any driver out there based on off of just endorsements. And his popularity and what he brings in merchandise-wise. Uh, and he's retiring at the end of this year because of health issues, I believe. You know, he never came out and said that. But I think his head issues have a major, major, major factor in his retirement deal. Um, so it just shows you, you know, it doesn't matter how much money you make. There's never a price you can put on health. And these guys go out there, and I know NFL players do too, where you can get a concussion on, on every single play. But, you know, Dale Jr. is a, a good example. You can get a concussion in a, in a stock car still. You know, you can get badly hurt in one of these things and have long-term effects. So I understand where Hamlin's coming from, no doubt about it. But I want to go back to where I was earlier, where I said, you know, this, these drivers didn't make any money really in the 80s. It's come a long way since then. Um, but I do think, John, if these drivers are unhappy about how much they're making, and I think they are getting to a point where they're very unhappy about how much they're making. I think we it took that's why it took Kozlowski so long to re-sign at Team Penske. I think you're starting to see that with Kurt Busch at Stuart Haas Racing. Hamlin's come out and saying we need to make more money. I don't think it's a coincidence that these drivers are voicing their opinions. It's going to be interesting to see if there's ever – a union if these guys get together and form a union again, because I think right now with the, with the social media and with the TV, with the popularity due to their TV being on TV and everything that these drivers are in control. Now they are the stars. And if they don't race, these fans aren't going to watch. So I think a union is very close. And I think this is something the drivers are really going to fight on John. I think the point where it came uh, when you brought about the Matt Kenseth rumor that he's got a price tag that he, a dollar sign in his head, a dollar amount in his head of what he is worth to drive a race car. And he's not budging. And I think part of it is Matt Kenseth is 45 years old and he's got a young family. The price of his health is what he wants because one blown tire, one bad accident can change his entire life. And I don't blame him for that. He says, okay, I like, I enjoy racing, but I also enjoy my family. So if I don't get this amount of money, which will ensure my family has the life we're accustomed to, I'm not going to do it. We're pretty much set for life. We're comfortable where we are. We're going to be good. I like to do this, but I also like to get paid. And I don't blame him one bit 
for not coming off that dollar amount. I think the way it's set up, and one of the things that Pockers put in his thing, and you said we were to talk about, was that the television deal from NASCAR is 10 years. It runs through 2024 at an average of $820 million a year. NASCAR gets 65, or the tracks get 65% of the money, and you know only a percentage of that's out in the purse. 25% go to the teams, and I think I did the average today when you and I were chatting back and forth. It's a little over $5 million per 40 divided. I mean, the 25% of the teams, you do it up each each of the 40 cars averages about 5 million bucks. And I think you turn it down to what, uh, $400,000 a race or something like that. And then NASCAR keeps 10%. And Hamlin brought it up bigger than anything. There's got to be a change in the revenue sharing. You see how many really good cars are fighting for sponsorship. It's not there. And NASCAR's got the official everything of NASCAR. And they're going on with all of this stuff. Denny is not far off. I mean, Denny can be a head case in the car sometimes. But I think Denny's one of the clearest thinkers in that garage area. He's the one that sort of helped put the driver's council together. He's sort of been on the forefront of trying to make things better when it comes to the driver's point of view. I don't blame them one bit for being great. I mean, you look, the teams are trying to squeeze the drivers to take pay cuts because they're not getting the sponsorship they're not that they've been getting in the past. But NASCAR and the tracks are making money hand over fist. When Kyle Larson said, I make more money off my T-shirts at a sprint car race than I do selling them in a NASCAR race, there's a problem. Absolutely, there's a big problem. And I think it's something that these drivers uh, are, are starting to voice their opinion on. 917-889-8280 here, Talking Circles, Clayton Cole, John Harlow, and Lee from Virginia. Hello, Lee. What do you want to talk about tonight? I'll, I'll chime in on this uh, topic about drivers not making enough money. John, you hit the nail right on the head. Listen, we're watching Phoenix now renovate itself for the third time in like six years. Um, you know, these tra- Richmond is going through a renovation process. Daytona just did a multi-million dollar renovation process. Million, and yeah. the purses, we don't know what the purses are, but they've gone, they've gone, they've, they've, I, would, I would imagine they've either gone down or stayed steady. And they had to create the chartering system to kind of circumvent that because the owners have been raising hell about it. And the owners don't care now because the only ones who are losing out now are the drivers. So, uh, listen, there definitely needs to be a change. I give Denny Hamlin a, a, so much credit for speaking out because I think the garage area is going to need a guy like that uh, because now that Dale Jr., now that Tony Stewart's gone, because Dale Jr. never really even spoke out this much, but Tony Stewart did. Now that Tony Stewart's gone, I think the, the, the garage needs a driver like that, and I hope Denny Hamlin's the one that takes that role. Yeah, it, it, and – it brought into light, and I think this is what NASCAR doesn't like to, to, to hear, is that it brought to light, you know, 65% of the TV money, as John talked about, goes to the racetracks, 25% goes to the teams, and, 50, and 10 goes to NASCAR. Um, so I think, you know, that is a major sticking point. The RTA, part of the reason why the RTA was created, Rob Kaufman came out and said it was, we want our hands on that TV money. When they saw how much money NASCAR signed that TV contract for, they said, we want a piece of that. We're not getting enough of that. And that's part of the reason why the RTA was signed. That's part of the reason why the chartering system, I think that was a driving force behind the chartering system, as you said, Lee. So, you know, the pe- people who were left out there were the drivers. Um, and yeah, their, their salaries 
have gone up in the years, but they're not seeing as much as TV money as they would like. Uh, I think they aren't seeing as much as the piece of the pie as they would like. Um, but let's sort of look at this from the team aspect of it. Uh, you talked about the, the tracks, Lee, and I completely agree. I think these racetracks make an obscene amount of money, just an unbelievable amount of money, especially when you consider their corporations. So they own multiple amount of racetracks, and they've, so, they've priced a little guy out, so they kind of got their own little monopoly between SMI and ISC. And it's a good thing for the racetracks, but I think it's a bad thing for the fans in general because you don't see these racetracks move much. You're not going to see these guys take pick, you know, lose a date because they're going to lose the money from a race. And ultimately, the tracks are sort of in control because we're not going to go run at, at Nashville without, you know, uh, without uh, safer barriers and stuff like that. So I just think at the end of the day, it just shows you the business side of it that ISC and SMI are sort of in it together and you're not going to see much change in the schedule. You're not going to see many, too many mile and a half tracks go away. It's just the way it is. And, and the tracks are ultimately the ones that are, are getting paid the money from the TV deal. And that's why uh, they are sort of in control of everything right now. There's no complaint there with that, Clayton. Also, when you, when you do the math, and I, I went through and looked back at our chat from earlier today, each of the 40 cars are getting $142,000 a race out of the 36 race season. That's barely the tire and engine bill. Don't even add in what the sponsors, I mean, you're trying to get your sponsorship and everything. The drivers without a doubt are the show. You need the team to put the car together, but the drivers are who they market. You don't see a promo on NBC or Fox saying, Come see Richard Petty Motorsports or Joe Gibbs Racing. No, you see Kyle Busch, you see Kyle Larson, you see Denny Hamlin, you see uh, Dale Jr. They're promoting the drivers. And the drivers are the ones who are risking their lives every time they strap into that car. And until NASCAR comes up with a better system and until they're made to, because, I mean, not only are you looking at what they're getting from the TV deal, Again, as I said a couple times, I went and talked to the folks at Kansas Speedway. They could run both races, not sell one ticket, not sell one T-shirt, not sell one hot dog, not sell one beer. They could run two races, run the crowd, run everybody out there, nobody in the stands, and make money because NASCAR and ISC own half of the casino outside of the turn two. So NASCAR's got, and ISC has money coming in that's not even counted in the TV contract or sales of T-shirts or sales of food or any of that stuff because they own a damn casino. And so that's part money of the there why, that doesn't even count. Yeah, that's part of the reason why Kansas got and, a second listen, date to begin with. Brian France, Brian France is on the board for some of these vendors, the, the, the restaurants and the people that are selling food and drinks at the at the – the company that owns the vending, uh, you know, the vending, the food and the beer, that company, Brian France is on the board of that. So, I mean, listen, there's a lot that they're making money off of. And I think, and, and we're, if, if we know this, the drivers and teams, they know way more than we do. And they're looking at it and going, damn, we want a piece of that pie and we're not getting enough of it. Now the drivers are making a hell of a lot more than they've ever made. 
And, you know, it, it really sometimes does bother me to hear millionaires gripe because they got good lives. I mean, I understand they're risking their lives, but they've got really good lives. And, and it really bothers me when they go, don't go sign autographs for fans and all that, but that's a whole other, whole other deal. But they got good lives and, and they're making millions of dollars. But compared to what NASCAR is making, when you're looking at the market and what's coming in, they're not getting anywhere near a piece of the pie that they should. And I think the only thing that's next is more than a driver's council is a union. And they better hope that the right. driver's union doesn't come. Because imagine, you know, you've already lost Jeff Gordon, Tony Stewart, and Dale Earnhardt Jr. back to back to back Carl years. Edwards. And Carl Edwards. So, and, possibly and God Kansas. knows who else here in the next couple of years. Possibly Matt Kenseth. If you're going to now do what you did in the 70s when the guys formed a union and kicked them out of the sport, good luck to you trying to survive off of that. Yeah, that, that's especially, what I'm saying. Go ahead, John. Go especially ahead. as crappy as Xfinity and truck, I mean, as, as crappy as the drivers are in the Xfinity series right now, if you're going to try to move them up and say, congratulations, this is your cup series, the TV contract will go away. I mean, they may be contract, they may be stuck showing it for all these years and paying NASCAR the money. But ISC, SMI, and the France family better have a good trust fund set up where they're making interest off of it because in 2024, when this contract comes up for, for renewal, I can guarantee you there will not be $820 million a year coming into the sport. Look at the difference. Sprint was paying, what, about $100 million a year to be the title sponsor. Monster's paying twenty, and they still don't know if they want to do it for a third year. Yeah. I, I, uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's wild. No doubt about it. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's just such a different – when you compare it to baseball and, and, and stuff like that, I, I think what you hit on, John, was an absolute fact. Uh, and, and Lee just left, and I really appreciate his call. But um, because they compare, compared to what baseball players and football players make – they do not make a whole lot of money compared to that, but I think they make more money off revenue. I think they make more money off endorsements. Uh, so that standpoint, um, I think that's where it sort of equals itself out. But, um, you know, Hamlin talked about being in the back end of the field and, and how these drivers in the back end of the field need to make more money as well. I understand that aspect too. Uh but, you know, there's always going to be drivers, the good ones are going to be making more money than, than the ones who don't run that good. And you talk about the Xfinity Series, you know, it's not necessarily drivers, it's sort of the teams as well. Um, you know, and we talk about as just star power standpoint, you know, um, does, does pe- do people, people really know outside of racing who Matt Tift is? Do people really know um, who Ross Chastain is? And these guys, you know, Ross Chastain might be able to get the job done, but to me, it's it's a fact of the star power. They don't have it in the Xfinity Series, and I think that's part of the reason um, why we I want the Cup guys out of the, the Xfinity Series because I think we need to get these Xfinity Series drivers some more recognition so people know who they are. Now I'm seven, eight, nine, eight. Go ahead. Wait, before we go, go before we go next, I watched the uh, thirty for thirty on the year of the scab. Whenever the NFL went on strike and the NFL brought in I mean the NFL players were on strike the NFL brought in the scab players it was about the Redskins the ones that actually won three games and wound up leading the Redskins to the Super Bowl the product sucked they had three games without real NFL players and they the play sucked I mean it was worse than a division three football game 
if we put the Xfinity drivers in the cup cars the way they are today, it would be a, I mean, it's a wreck fest in the Xfinity series half the time. Just imagine what it'd be if you give them another 150 horsepower. It'd just be a disaster. That would last one week in NASCAR with Cave. And you, we see Xfinity guys come up. You know, Eric Jones talked about the difference between Xfinity and Cup. Daniel Suarez talked about it earlier this year where it's a big difference. Ryan Reed, when he ran his uh, lone Cup Series race at Talladega last year, said the difference in talent and, and how hard it is to run a restrictor plate race in, at Daytona and Talladega in the Cup Series compared to the Xfinity Series is huge. So there's no doubt what you're saying has some merit, John, uh, for sure. One other topic I want to touch on before the night ends, 917 if you want to join a conversation here on Talking Circles, is – uh, a little bit of news that came this week about Bubba Wallace and Danica Patrick. NASCAR trying to sell a little bit of sponsorship for them, help talking to their partners and trying to get sponsorship for for these big-name drivers. Bubba Wallace, who is an African-American uh, and would help make the field more diverse. Danica Patrick is a female. Same deal with her. Uh, but Danica's lost a lot of sponsorship here. She looks like she might be out of a ride. So NASCAR is trying to help her get some sponsorship, trying to help Bubba Wallace uh, establish himself in the Cup Series ride. What are your thoughts on that, John? Do you think that's necessary? Do you think NASCAR should be doing something like that? Is that good for the sport, or do you think they should sort of let it play the way, play out the way it should, and uh, you know, kind of let the owners and sponsors determine the way things go? What are your thoughts on that? I think it goes back to the um, revenue sharing amongst the group. If the tracks weren't getting sixty-five percent of the cut from the TV money, if the teams were getting more than 25%, you wouldn't see people buying rides. You'd see the best drivers in the best cars instead of somebody buying a ride or somebody gets a ride because they have sponsorship attached to them that somebody else who's probably a little better is just a driver and doesn't go out begging for sponsors to play. Um, Brian France was on with – uh, Jim and Chocolate today on Trade and Paint, whenever that question came up, Brian France's words exactly were, we get involved all the time in sponsor agreements with individual teams when it came to asking about the Danica and Bubba thing. It's not inconsistent with what we do. As far as those two drivers, of course, we'd like to see them both have a real good opportunity, but we can't control that. At the end of the day, you've got to compete. Both of those drivers have shown they can compete at some level, the question is, is it high enough to attract the right sponsorship and interest? We'll see how it plays out. And those were Brian France's words exactly. I think Bubba Wallace deserves a shot. I think Danica had her shot and has made every excuse why that shot didn't work. If she goes away tomorrow, we can say, hey, Danica Patrick ran the race, I mean, ran in NASCAR, but she didn't move the needle forward. Um. Bubba has a chance to. He ran better than Eric Almarola did in petty equipment, and that's mid-class, nothing special in the petty's camp. But he ran well in it, and I'd like to see Bubba get a chance. But if the cut was not 25% for the owners and 65% for the tracks, I bet you see somebody matching Matt Kenseth's salary demands because Probably. they have the ability with the money coming in. You'd see Bubba Wallace get a shot somewhere, not because sponsorship was tied to him, but because the guy can run. And that's one of the sad parts about the way NASCAR went. Too much money is sitting there in the pockets of Bruton Smith, Lisa France Kennedy, 
Brian France, Jim France, and not enough money is going to four car owners getting the best teams on the track with the best drivers and the best equipment. And that's where the problem is. Yeah, and when we didn't see the money issue as, as bad, which was like the 90s and 2000s, where uh, we didn't see ride buyers. I mean, there were still some, but not nearly as bad as we saw this time. You know, the, the I felt the uh, purse was very, was very, very good. And I think it sort of stayed the same. You know, I remember before when they before they stopped announcing how much the purse was, uh, it was pretty much the same as it was 50, 10 years ago prior to that. So, um, and you know, the cost of, of everything went up, but this purse stayed the same. So that put a little bit more emphasis on sponsorship, no doubt about it. So uh, I think that's something that definitely has uh, some merit, not to use, to, to keep beating that term up uh, again. Uh, 917-889-8280, last couple minutes of the show here, John. I want to preview the Bank of America 500 from Charlotte before we move on, before we uh, close out tonight's show. Um, it's, it's the first race of round two of the chase, or excuse me, the playoffs now that they call it. Uh, it's, it's an interesting race because it's back to a mile and a half. You know, we got Kansas, we're going to have Texas, we're going to have Homestead, all mile and a half tracks to finish out this year. Uh, so they make up a big chunk of the playoffs. Uh, it's not under the lights, which is interesting. Uh, first time I can remember an October race not being under the lights in forever. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because of the heat. Uh, usually it's very cold in Charlotte in October under the lights, so that should change this race up. Austin Dillon won the Coca-Cola 600. Uh, he did it on fuel strategy, so um, it's going to be interesting to see if he's a player or not in that race. But really, I think who you have to look out for, John, is the Toyota Brigade. Will Chevrolet and Ford have enough to compete? Martin Tricks Jr. especially. He's finished in the top five in four of the last five races here and has led over 550 laps in those races. Is he a favorite heading into Sunday's race? Is he the favorite? Oh, yeah. Martin Truex is a favorite in everything we have going the rest of the way except for Martinsville. Maybe Phoenix. Um, Martin Truex, Kyle Busch, Kyle Larson are the three to – I mean – as it's been all year, they're the three you have to pay attention to. The two that I give a chance, a puncher's chance to is Jimmy Johnson and Kevin Harvick. Um, those two have run well at Charlotte. They've been consistent at Charlotte. Um, and I think with it being in the daytime, it might be a little different than the way Truex has dominated over the past few times they've run at Charlotte. Um, it's a hotter track. It'll be slicker. Um, it won't be follow the leader. You're going to have to manage your tires because it will be hot and slick. You've got to manage your adjustments. You got to stay ahead of the track. I think it's going to be, uh, your typical three that we've been talking about all season, but your two that I think can give them a run for it are Johnson and Kevin Harvick. Yeah. I'm interested to see what the Fords do this year, this week. You talked about Harvick, obviously in a Ford, he was their best shot. I think at winning Dover before he had his issues, uh, Team Penske really, really struggled. Um, mile and a half track's a little different. Maybe Ford and Team Penske put their monies on them and put their money in the mile and a half program because they didn't show up at Dover. Will they show up again at Char- at Charlotte? I hope so because that would make a very interesting playoffs the rest of the way. This used to be the house that Jimmy built back, you know, five, ten years ago. We haven't seen the same strength from him. Can he rebound and make that and make a play for this championship? It's going to be interesting to see. I'd like to thank everybody for listening to Talking Circles tonight. Uh, we'll be back here on Sunday after the Bank of America 500 at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Good night, everybody.